1: Hello and welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Foo, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. With only a week left until its NASDAQ debut, Lyft executives took their $2.1 billion IPO roadshow to New York this week. The company touted its revenue and corporate values in its pitch to investors, but our guests said the ride-sharing startup omitted necessary details in their IPO filing and buyers will need to fill in some of the blanks for themselves. Rhett Wallace, the CEO of Triton Research, who specializes in digging through S1 filings and evaluating IPOs, joined us to tell us why he can't assess Lyft's business from their filing.
2: Well, so we have a thing internally that we call the obfuscation index that (laughs) is part of the transparency score for these companies. And this company scored like an 11 out of a 10-point scale on obfuscation. So the financials are all there. But other than the financial statements, things that you might want to see is sort of what are the churn rates of the passengers and the drivers? What does it cost to acquire them on both sides of the equation? How much money does they really spend in discounts and so forth? Like, for example, we think there might be as much as $300 million that's kind of squishy in their revenue number. That's really just sort of discounted stuff that they call revenue. So they've just made it really hard to build a model that will help you project this company into the future. And the future is what it's all about because the one number you can believe is the billion dollars of negative EBITDA do you
3: that think this company has. Do you think that some of the investors out here on the road show are going to demand that information or is there just not un- enough pushback right
2: now? Uh, well, you know, they have a lot of underwriters on this cover. Like who knew you could have a syndicate that's so big that doesn't have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Allen and company in it, but they've obviously decided to not furnish this information. I think it gives Uber an opportunity when they file to competitively sort of take it to Lyft and be more transparent than Mm -hmm. these guys have been. But so I think what you get right now is what you get and you can sort of decide if you want to focus on the top line and not worry about the profitability the way that they've asked you to do.
4: We've had some great reporting coming from Eric Newcomer, our reporter who's been camped out in the lobby of the hotel, (laughs) basically saying actually, they're now saying that peak spending is going to be 2019. Th- th- that begs the question, yes, you might not be spending so much going forward. It might relieve everyone in terms of a cost base. But then what about the marketing spend if you're going to be able to comp- keep this 39% market share as they claim to have?
2: 39 mar- 39% market share, only including Uber, not any competitors from a source that is part of Rakuten, which is, you know, in they're the, in the, right, exactly. So, you know, it's not exactly the the best number to hang your hat on. Like, look, if you think that ride sharing is going to be big in the long term, then you have the big number two here that you can own at, you know, a $25, $26, 27000000000 billion value, and that may be great for you. But it would be great if you knew what the unit economics were, so you knew if they were making money as they scale,
3: because it could be that they lose money on each individual unit. But investors seem to be giving companies like this a pass. I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen a company sort of uh, be a little squishy on the numbers. It's
2: true. We've and, seen this before.
3: And I feel like that when you look at what happened with the Levi IPO today and how much appetite there was for it, that, that maybe that gives a the green light to the lift to say okay we could kind of do what we want to people sure saying, oh. I
2: mean the analogy we see is snap right mm-hmm. it's hard to sco- score lower in our system than snap did but this company Lyft scored much lower than wow. Snap did so you know the analogy is that it's a big well-known well-funded company mm-hmm. that has terrible disclosure mm-hmm. right that, you know, has decided, like, we're just going to get people to, like, focus on the top line and not to do this other stuff, but also has a really big, gnarly, dominant competitor in the market. Snap had to go take advertising dollars away from Facebook, which they struggled to do. And similarly, Lyft is going to have to go compete with Uber, and that's a very difficult thing to do because Uber is so much bigger than
1: Lyft. Remind our uh, viewers, so you score IPOs based on all these factors, including transparency and all this stuff. What kind of predictability have you, I mean, it only matters if it can uh, tell you that a stock's going to do badly or well. So when you look at like companies that have scored well for some of this stuff, Mm -hmm. what are some examples that stand out and then investors? Sure. So
2: like, you know, for, for example, I think our highest score ever was Atlassian. It's you know, just been a sort of total standout. And companies that have done really badly are like Mogu, you know, Chinese e-commerce company that came out recently. I think is our lowest score ever. Exactly. But the just, you know, on average, over the last year and change, companies with high scores or above average scores have about doubled. And companies, all tech IPOs in general, are up about 45%. So you're doing about twice as well if you buy the high scores as the average scores.
4: I mean, some analysts out there are finding enough to be able to give price targets. I mean, a $75 price target come from mm-hmm. DA Davidson. We've got Bloomberg Intelligence actually talking about the opportunity to expand the business model into freight, into food. Right. Do you think that that's a realistic way that the business is going to go? Yes, there might not be that much transparency on the overall numbers, but is the general consensus that well, this so company they can
2: bra- grow they and brag grow in their show that they are focused. Yeah. on passengers and not freight not food they say this right up front yeah so if you think that that's the opportunity I think that look the real expansion opportunity is non-US yeah. they say that Canada is immaterial And so they're a U.S. only player as opposed to Uber, which is totally global. And so whether they're going to be in other lines of business, which will cost a lot of money to develop, is one thing. But, you know, are they going to be a global transportation company the way Uber plans to be?
1: Well, it's interesting, too, like, uh, uh, even within the transportation category, things like scooters. Yes. And how much for both of these companies, the degree to which their future depends on new businesses, even as the current business does not seem to be all that special.
2: Well, it's special, it's just not profitable, right? It's so minor, minor detail. <laughs> right, so they say they're in early innings, and maybe that's true, like it could be that this develops into a way that people get around and they are a tent of the economy. Are scooters gonna be important to that? I don't know, like, yeah. you know, that's, that's the whole point here. That's why the transparency score is so Got important it. here. It would be great if we had all of the numbers so that we could actually make an assessment for ourselves about how important each of these components is gonna be. Yeah,
4: because Amazon wasn't too profitable
2: for a little while. Correct, and then AWS. Right. So if they had an AWS up their sleeve,
1: they should tell us now. Then Scarlett and Caroline spoke with former New York Federal Reserve President Bill Dudley, who is now a senior research scholar at Princeton Center for Economic Policy Studies, ahead of the Fed's decision. They started by asking the former New York Fed president for his rate outlook for the rest of 2019. And Dudley told them why tightening may be back in play later in the year.
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, what patience means is we're just not going to do anything in the very near term. We want more information about how the economy is performing on the growth side, and we want more information about uh, inflation. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have a pretty weak first quarter, and that's going to cause the Fed to wait for even more information. But if if the economy picks up speed again, as I expect will happen, and inflation starts to drift higher, then the Fed will be back in play, maybe as early as the second half of this year.
4: If the economy picks up speed but the stock market gets worried about a Fed hike and falls out of bed again. Do you think the Fed would be able to hike into that, or was it really the fall in the stock market that drove the pause?
5: I I think it was much more than just the weakness in the stock market in the fourth quarter. There were also questions about global growth, especially in China. Uh, The the inflation news was soft. Uh, The unemployment rates for a while there stopped declining despite strong payroll gains. Uh, I think the key issue is inflation stays low then it's gonna be hard for the Fed to hike. If inflation starts to drift up and we've seen some acceleration in wages then I think that's the Fed tightening back on the table.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the balance sheet runoff. You have said the market is far too focused on this issue, and they should look at the composition of the Fed's balance sheet over the longer term instead. Yet, we come back to this point, and certainly was highlighted following the December FOMC meeting. Why is there such sensitivity to the balance sheet? Is it because investors don't really understand how it worked, the transmission mechanism, and, and therefore are worried about the unwinding as well?
5: I think people are making a mistake about mistaking the timing of the decision to end the normalization policy with some statement about the Fed's policy on monetary policy. The Fed is stopping earlier just because banks have higher demand for reserves than the Fed thought, not because the Fed is trying to make monetary policy easier. The second issue is the stopping point isn't really as important as two other issues. One, what's the composition of the Fed's balance sheet over the long run? In other words, they're going to have mostly Treasury securities. They already told us that, but is it going to be mostly Treasury bills or are they going to include notes and bonds? And second, how fast are they going to get there? Are they going to allow the runoff just to continue passively uh, and then replace those with uh, with Treasury bills and notes over time? Or are they going to actually start selling agency MBS? Because it would take a very long time for agency MBS to run off their portfolio completely.
4: Do you have an inclination and what they will do.
5: Well, I think that they're going to favor mostly uh, short-dated Treasury securities uh, for the simple reason that that allows them to lengthen the duration of their Treasury portfolio uh, if there's an economic downturn and the Fed needs more ammunition. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to do about the agency mortgage-backed securities. I would guess that at some point in time, they'll start selling a small portion of agency mortgage-backed securities every every month. But I'm not sure that they're going to make that decision quite yet.
0: So we might not hear about it uh, this week, is what you're saying.
5: I think this week, really, we're just going to hear about how we're going to end the balance sheet runoff. Uh, Maybe we'll hear a little bit about the composition between Treasury bills, notes, and bonds. But I'd be surprised if they got to the the bigger issue of the composition of the balance sheet and how how they're going to get there. Maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe they'll give us the whole thing.
0: All right. Got it. I want to move on to the deficit. You've written a column for Bloomberg Opinion about why the U.S. trade deficit keeps growing. Um, and, And certainly this is something that the president looks very carefully on because he uses it as a yardstick for measuring if the U.S. is winning or losing, especially when it comes to trade deals with our partners. But was Dick Cheney right? Do deficits really matter? It seems like with the deficit growing, investors don't seem particularly worried about it.
5: Well, I think the key issue here is uh, trade deficits aren't about uh, just bilateral trade negotiations and the level of trade barriers that you face versus another country. Trade deficits are mostly about whether the country has a savings shortage or not, because that savings shortage has to be met by foreign capital inflows, and that's that's what the trade deficit actually generates. One reason why, probably the primarily reason why the trade deficit went up last year is that fiscal policy became more stimulative. That increased the size of the savings shortfall in the U.S. We needed more foreign capital to fill that gap. The dollar adjusted to generate a bigger U.S. trade deficit.
4: Talk to us about general deficits. A lot of talk about it with modern monetary theory and the like. Do deficits, broader deficits matter?
5: Well, I think that uh, markets are certainly much (coughs) less focused on fiscal deficits than they have been in the past but that doesn't mean that you can just run as big a deficit as you want for as long as you want without any consequence. You know, Modern monetary theory argues that because our debts are denominated in dollars, we can't default on on our debts, and that's correct, but that doesn't mean that you can have as much spending as you want because at some point there'll be too much uh, demand for goods and services that will cause inflation. Countries that have run large chronic uh, deficits funded by money creation uh, that's always led to inflation. Uh, Germany in the 1920s, uh, Zimbabwe more recently. Uh, we had a small bout of this in the 1960s and 70s when we had the guns and butter policies under uh, Lyndon Johnson.
0: Bill, I want to get your thoughts on the passing of Alan Krueger. I know he was a colleague of yours at Princeton University. He was also a giant in the field of labor economics. What, what, what do we learn from Professor Krueger when it comes to how we should pursue labor policy?
5: Well, he's a giant, I mean, you know, it's, it's very depressing to hear the news today. Uh, you know, he's an incredibly respected uh, individual, both personally uh, and as an economist in the dis- discipline of labor economics. I think he, he just did path-breaking work that deepened our understanding of the labor market and how the labor market actually functions.
1: This week, some U.S. trade negotiators told Bloomberg that they are concerned Beijing is pushing back against American demands in the ongoing trade negotiations. But President Trump rushed off the concerns and said the talks with China are going very well. We broke down the mixed messages out of Washington this week with Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. We started by asking him why the Chinese might be uncomfortable about where the trade negotiations stand with the U.S. Well, I think the
6: first and most obvious thing to note is that
1: negotiations
6: tend to stretch on if they're allowed to stretch on. Mm. And without a scheduled summit, there is going to be more time to haggle. It's hard to know if China's really walking things back or if some things that weren't entirely clear remain uh, not entirely clear. (laughs) What struck me most is that there isn't yet clarity, at least from what the Chinese are saying, about the path to removal of US tariffs and I don't think it's realistic to expect China to put its best offer on the table unless they get uh, a clear sign that the majority of the tariffs will be rolled back.
3: Do you have a vision of exactly what a US China trade deal is going to look like because it, it seems like it's gotten very muddled between what we th- originally thought it could be, you know, say, you know, 6 or 8 months ago and today.
6: I mean, I think there's some general consensus on the very broad contours of the deal. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a large Chinese purchase commitment mm-hmm. at the center of the deal. That tends to be what the president cares most about. There will be some modest market opening. Uh, some of that's already been announced. Mm-hmm. The relaxation of joint venture requirements and autos and financial services. There's going to be some tit-for-tat tariffs that have been put on in the past that are rolled back. Uh, obviously, there's going to be, as part of the purchase commitment, a rollback of the soybean tariffs, mm-hmm. for example. And then there's going to be something on the structural side. What precisely is in that agreement remains a little bit of a mystery.
4: And what remains a mystery is the timeline as well. There's reporting that maybe Lighthizer and Mnuchin are going back over to Beijing. But what would constitute opt- what would you get excited and optimistic about if we heard some sort of date or timeline? Do you think that would be enough?
6: Well, I think, I guess it depends on whether you believe we are headed towards a good deal or you believe you? we're No, I don't. I, from what I've heard, China has not been willing to make significant commitments that constrain its industrial policy ambitions in those sectors, uh, advanced manufacturing sectors, that I think are critical to the United States' long-run competitiveness. So I think you're looking at a much more modest deal that's going to be dressed up. But if you were looking towards a deal, a firm date on the summit, whether it's in April or whether it's going to be tied to the G20 in June, would be positive
1: news. Uh, When we first booked you to come on today, I think we were originally going to talk about Europe because Xi Jinping is going to Europe. And there's been a lot of talk about how a lot of Europe's slowdown can at least in part be attributed to the slowdown in China and weakening demand. From the European perspective, what do they need to see out of China? What's their goal in China? sort of in their talks with Xi Jinping?
6: Well, I mean, uh, the great thing about Europe is Europe's every bit as divided as the Trump administration. (laughs) Uh, So I think the Italians probably want something quite different uh, than the Germans. Uh, You know, the Germans share a lot of the uh, concerns that many in the US have expressed about Chinese industrial policy. Germany exports a lot of autos to China. Right. And then the Germans also have a concern that the, U- that the deal with the US not squeeze Europe out of Chinese markets. The Italians look to be looking for a little bit of Chinese investment, which strikes me as a failure of European policy. Europe has no shortage of its own funds. Europe runs a big current account surplus. Right. Why can't Germany be mobilizing European funds to make infrastructure investments throughout the year?
4: Oh, have Mario Draghi comment on that, because the, the <laughs> fiscal bringing together of Europe is a very difficult one. What
3: about, though, I mean, China has made, still is making a lot of progress with this Belt and Road Initiative, uh, not necessarily in, in the G7 countries, but you're seeing in Africa, other parts of Asia, and to a smaller extent in Latin America. China seems to at least be moving forward on the trade front, whether you agree with, with what they're doing. Doing or not why aren't we seeing a little bit more movement on the us side uh, outside of china it seems all the talk about trade on the us side is all about china but we don't really see a lot of talk about our agreements or our lack of agreements with other nations
6: well i mean there was an agreement reached by the trump administration and our nafta trading partners Oh, i forgot about that sort point. of yeah. stalled in congress yeah. and i think until you get a deal mm-hmm. with the democrats on USMCA, new NAFTA. It's hard to move forward on the other components of Trump's trade agenda. Uh, Trump is looking for a bilateral free trade agreement or some kind of agreement mm-hmm. with Japan. There's ongoing talks about Europe, but that seems much more the Europeans trying to prevent Trump from imposing the auto tariffs, ah. which would be a, a big hit. Mm. And you know, if there are various things that you know Europe worries about, I
1: think the threat of Trumpian auto tariffs is right up there. Apple and Google weren't the only companies that rolled out new products this week. Ledger, the world's leading hardware wallet and blockchain security company, recently unveiled its new signature hardware wallet, the Ledger Nano X, a Bluetooth-enabled hardware wallet. The Nano X is an improvement on the Ledger Nano S, which is the world's most popular hardware wallet and has sold over 1.5 million units. We sat down with the Ledger CEO, Eric Larshevich, and started by asking him how the crypto downturn has impacted his company's sales.
7: Well, obviously, the number of units that we sell are directly linked to the price of Bitcoin because the higher the price, uh, the, the more interest in the media, so more new entrants. Uh, but when we have announced the new products, the Nano X, at the CES, we have been quite overblown by the interest uh, because, basically, until now, the use case was just to buy and hold, like yeah. really a safe. Uh-huh. And now people really want m- more to use it. That's why we had to uh-huh. go mobile with the Bluetooth.
4: So you're seeing more trading basically, you're seeing people more, what, you can store what 100 crypto assets or something on the ledger, yes. is people wanting to, amid this crypto winter, actually buy and sell that little bit more?
7: They want to buy, they want to sell, but they also want to use. Now our customers want to, for instance, to get passive revenue from uh, their crypto, uh, having interest, uh, this is the kind of new mining that you, go, that you can do directly, uh, and so there is these new use cases that are now possible.
1: Does adding Bluetooth to a hardware wallet create any security risks like inc- it sort of yeah. increases the complexity, increases the way other devices can interact with the idea? I mean, the part of the appeal of cold storage is, is just disconnected from everything. And so now you're adding connectivity, which I get, you know, maybe helps usage. You swipe it at a card reader one day. But does, are the, what about the security?
7: that's a very good question Uh, it doesn't change at all our security model because the Nano X operates uh, under the fact that all communication could be completely compromised so the same way that USB connection could be compromised it's the same for Bluetooth and if ever so first of all if it's encrypted and if it was broken you can only have a privacy issue because you always check on the screen what you sign And so even with the Bluetooth that doesn't change at all the the connectivity and the security of the device because basically what we have inside is a secure chip that does the isolation and it's always cold because the private keys never go online. So I understand how
3: this would appeal to on the consumer side for someone looking for this, but in terms of it to actually be useful. At some point, you're going to have to have businesses involved in this mm. that are going to be on this other side of the Correct. transaction. So are you working with them? Are you pitching them this product and sort of what it can be as a link between that consumer that's buying it from you and and, the, and how that consumer is going to use
7: it? Yeah, by, by being mobile, you have the possibility to really use crypto on the go, anywhere. Right. Um, and, of course, that can be useful only if you can have use cases that you can do in, in, in the real life. Right now, people are more like holding, are like trans- but it's a long way uh, before we are going to see uh, businesses adopting uh, crypto we know it's not a sprint it's a marathon Mm -hmm. and what we have learned with uh, this crypto winter and the previous crypto winter is that you need to be patient
4: so give us a length of time as to when we see spring. I was hearing Alexis Ohanian, who backs a few crypto companies, was just tweeting today that it's already spring. He's seeing a load of use cases coming to be born now. But when realistically am I going to be using crypto on a day-to-day basis? And when do you think the erosion in valuation of crypto is going to come to an end as well?
7: Well, not only we have now all these decentralized cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, but we see new use cases with tokenization. Mm. We are going to see the dollar on crypto so this will unlock a new kind of use cases that will be much more mainstream so our prediction is that by mid 2020 we are going to see a real spring and uh, the 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 market will be back so it will take for us i think more than a year
1: just going back to the security side so i get that the addition of bluetooth doesn't change the security model but the idea of using one's wallet out in stores Mm -hmm. It raises the possibility that someone could come at you with a wrench and say, put in your uh, password, or I'm going to hit you with this wrench, which is not, there's no tech in the world that can protect against that if you have it out. So are people really gonna feel comfortable just like carrying their crypto out with them like this?
7: So you can use different level. You can have passphrases, you can have two pin codes, which basically can hide a part of mm. your assets. So it's true that the only answer to So the you
1: prob- put in a code, it's like, look, I only have $10 worth of Bitcoin. Yeah,
7: right? yeah, that's true. So, yeah. but it is, if you want to have perfect security, you need governance, multi signatures, and that's also part of the roadmap.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?